0: This
1: is Pave It Black. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pave It Black, the official podcast of the National Asphalt Paving Association. My name is Richard Willis. And I'm Brett Williams. And today, we're talking about the road forward. In 2020, NAPA's member leadership authorized forming a task force, which became known as the Climate Stewardship Task Force. This task force was really designed to understand and develop goals that the industry could put forward related to what it was going to do for climate change and to reduce emissions for the industry. I probably need a little bit more explanation on that, too. This task force worked for nine months to develop four industry goals and really set the path forward for helping the industry move towards net zero.
2: So today, I'm hoping to understand a little bit more about how an asphalt company feels about the process that was gone through to set these goals and the changes that were required of these companies to
1: achieve them. So to help us better understand that, today we've invited Raven Adams from Granite Construction to be on the podcast. Raven was an active member of the Climate Stewardship Task Force and now serves as the Vice Chair for NAPA's Sustainability Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Raven. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Granite?
0: Thanks so much, Richard and Brad. I really appreciate you inviting me to join you on the podcast today. So my name is Raven Adams. I'm the sustainability manager at Granite Construction, which means I have the pleasure of leading our sustainability program. And I've been in this role for a few years at Granite for four years. And before that, in my previous life, I was an attorney. So I like to joke that I'm a recovering lawyer. And in that part of my life, I focused on environmental and natural resources. law.
2: Thanks for joining us. One of the first questions I was hoping you could help me with is if you could share your experience as a member of the Climate Stewardship Task Force and maybe some of the activities or milestones that stood out to you as a member of that group.
0: Of course. I really appreciated the opportunity to participate in the Climate Stewardship Task Force. Just to share a little bit of my personal take on that, I didn't go to law school because I wanted to have a traditional legal path. Actually, before that, I studied psychology and neuroscience, and so law school was a little bit of a left turn. And the reason I went to law school was actually because I was really concerned about climate change, and I had this attitude. I thought, we're all facing these big global problems, but people seem to have such divisive opinions and such contentious approaches to things that I thought, as a young positive-minded person, if I go to law school, maybe I can learn how to help bring people with vastly different opinions together to tackle these kind of complex issues. And maybe I can contribute to helping solve climate change. It was really at law school that I found my passion for sustainability. And ultimately, I never expected to be in the construction and construction materials industry. That was a little bit of a surprise to me. But as soon as I got into this industry, I got more involved in NAPA, and then being involved in the Climate Stewardship Task Force really made me feel like I was, in some ways, living my dream, Right, trying to bring all these different people together to to tackle a complex issue. So just at the outset, it meant a lot to me to be able to participate in the process.
2: Within the Climate Stewardship Task Force, you looked at setting goals and those type of things. I was wondering... If you had looked at maybe other industries as part of that process, and if you saw some parallels, and then also if you noticed any areas where the asphalt industry is kind of different when it approaches these topics.
0: One of the things that stood out to me about our process was that I think we were a little bit more candid or open and honest about some of the barriers that we face, right? I think that there have been a lot of companies or industries that have set really ambitious targets without necessarily doing the legwork necessary to understand what that process really entails, what barriers might get in the way, and then what other research and development might be necessary to achieve our goals. So I appreciated that our planning process really involved identifying some of those barriers and then trying to essentially be candid about what kind of support the industry needs, which from my perspective is mostly in that research and development and funding for research and development to develop more sustainable materials, lower carbon materials.
1: So I remember a lot of our conversations early on, everyone was sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this is so big. This is such a, a kind of a massive lift. And even asking the question, I was like, can we even do this? I know this has always been something that's important to you, but was there a kind of a turning point moment for you while you were serving on the Climate Stewardship Task Force when it went kind of from holy cow to, yeah, I think this is something that we can do. It's not just a goal, but it's something that I think we can get the industry behind and we can make progress on.
0: Yes, yeah, so I've actually been reflecting on that a little bit in preparation for the podcast. And Richard, I, I definitely had a similar feeling that When we first started, it seemed as though everyone was very overwhelmed, right? And we started with a a large group of people, I think just over 20 people, and many of them, I think, were not particularly familiar with climate change issues. So over that nine month process, I think maybe the first three months or so were really just about education and giving people more information about what this process or problem really entails and all of the big challenges that we were facing. And I think at first there was maybe not resistance, but skepticism. I think we faced a lot of skepticism in those early conversations. I don't know if you remember it that way, but I certainly remember feeling like, wow, people don't yet understand what this problem is or why it's so important that we try to solve it, even though it's so complicated. And I think probably a lot of us walked away from some of those initial meetings feeling a little bit discouraged or intimidated by this whole process. And I think there probably wasn't one single moment, but after those first couple of months, I think there was a shift in my mind that we moved a little bit away from that skepticism or resistance and started to get the gears going in terms of, okay, let's tackle this together. How are we really going to make a path forward? And I think part of the key to that logistically was breaking out into our smaller teams, right? So we started with this large group where sometimes there can be a lot of noise and There's a a truism that the biggest size for a meeting or a group of people you can have is really the size of a jury, right? So 12 people and we were way over 12 people. So I think it was really hard to have a productive conversation with that really big group. But once you broke us into the breakout groups and we had those smaller teams of, I think, between three and five people, that's when in my mind, we really started to make progress. And so I was on the policy and partnering team and breaking the Big, complex problems into smaller chunks is really what helped us make progress.
2: So now that the road forward is out and the industry's goals have been set, I'm curious if you could share some of the things that you and maybe more broadly Granite Construction have started to look at or work on to help move the company towards achieving these goals.
0: Sure. So Granite has been focused on sustainability for several years, but we really just Started planning more around climate change. And so we performed our first carbon footprint analysis back in 2016. And at that time, it was a very manual, labor-intensive process. Essentially, our environmental director did it all on his own by hand, right? So he was asking for utility invoices and sending out spreadsheets to our environmental teams, and then collating all of this information on his own to do the greenhouse gas calculations. And since our company pretty much doubled in size since 2016, that wasn't going to be a sustainable process for assessing our carbon footprint. So it wasn't until 2020 that we actually reassessed our carbon footprint. And since then, a lot of our work has been focused on improving that carbon accounting system and setting up essentially more automated and reliable systems to capture that information so that it's not just on individuals, computers, computers, and requiring that manual process that might entail errors and mistakes. So at at the outset, we've done a lot of work to bring the right people together to set up those right kinds of information systems for data collection and reporting. We also formed a climate awareness task force in 2020. And essentially, I helped gather the right kinds of functional leaders and subject matter experts to start thinking about this complicated problem, similar similar to Napa's approach, right? So we got all of those different perspectives together in the same room to really think about what are we going to do? How does climate change impact our business? One of the first things we did in that group was to conduct our very first climate risk assessment and really thinking about all of the different physical transition and then legal risks associated with climate change and we've completed that process and you can see the results of it in our 2020 sustainability report and now we're sort of onto the next steps in terms of climate risk of figuring out how we're going to mitigate those risks in the long term on the emissions reduction side we have done a lot of things to lower our carbon footprint in terms of energy efficiency i think historically about 10 years ago we started an energy efficiency program to challenge our asphalt plants to reduce emissions as much as possible. So that involved things like insulating pipes, updating equipment, using variable frequency drives, and transitioning to cleaner fuels, right? Um, so there was a lot of groundwork done in, in terms of kind of that low hanging fruit around climate change. And in our, equipment fleet, because there's not a lot of commercially available electric vehicles and that heavy equipment, that we still have some room to grow there. So we've actually just launched in these past couple of weeks, we've launched another project to actually build the roadmap for how we're going to achieve our climate goal. We set a new sustainability strategy that we unveiled in our 2020 sustainability report. And that does include our first absolute scope one emissions reduction target. We're looking to reduce our emissions by 25% by 2030 from a 2020 baseline. So it's a fairly ambitious target. It's not quite yet a science-based target, but it was the most ambitious target we felt we could set at this time based on technology that we see available today. And so we've engaged a team of external experts, and we will work collaboratively with them and our internal climate awareness task force to really get the details on that roadmap of how we're going to reduce our emissions.
1: So when the industry came out, they set their four goals and they really revolve around the different kind of scope emissions. So there was the scope one emission of uh, going net zero production and construction, scope two with net zero electricity consumption, and then upstream scope three was the net zero material supply chain and downstream is really scope three is that the use and maintenance and rehabilitation end of life and all those things that the owners control. So I like the goals and tactics that have been set. Which of the ones are kind of the most exciting to you or look to potentially be low hanging fruit? Like, why aren't we jumping on this right now? And which ones seem to be kind of the most daunting or difficult to tackle?
0: That's a great question. So I'd say the goal area that is most intriguing or exciting to me is probably also the most challenging one. And that's in scope three, specifically in the upstream part of scope three. So when you look at a company's value chain, the upstream part of it would be all of the component materials that go into whatever you're making. So in the asphalt world, for us, granted it makes a lot of asphalt, that would be having that supply chain of materials that go into asphalt actually be net zero. And to me, that's a really exciting challenge, especially when compared to something like a net zero construction site, right? So we have electric vehicles. We know how to electrify equipment. Maybe we're not quite there yet in terms of having heavy equipment commercially available, but that will involve more upscaling and applying currently existing technology in new ways. That's one level of challenge. But when we look at Scope 3 and the value chain, that's a whole new level of challenge, right? That's really going to require innovation because we don't currently have viable technology to make asphalt without petroleum products. So when you think of something like Asphalt Binder, which probably your audience is pretty familiar with asphalt, but in case there are any people outside of the industry listening, Asphalt Binder is basically the sticky stuff that helps all the aggregate and component parts of asphalt stick together. And that's a, a petroleum product. And there have been some really exciting experiments with bio-based materials like cashew nutshells to replace those components. And I think that that's just such an exciting development. I wonder, could we potentially have bio-based asphalt that doesn't have any petroleum products in it? One exciting innovation we've had at Granite involves an innovative asphalt mix that includes recycled plastic. So they found a special type of plastic that could not otherwise be recycled. And so we're able to remove that out of the waste stream and break it down in in a special process that we're looking to patent and actually use that plastic to displace part of the petroleum binder product. So it's not just using the road as a horizontal landfill, right? It's actually using this recycled plastic as a functional component. So our engineer, this recycled plastic and helps displace the use of virgin asphalt binder. That was probably the most exciting thing in my world in the past couple of years was hearing that our teams had been experimenting with that recycled plastic and that they actually found a way to make it work. I really admire our teams, and we have so many intelligent engineers who are doing great work. And it's really been a pleasure to work with them and learn more about these processes and and how they're helping to tackle these issues of of how we can think in new ways about the products that we make.
2: So initially, I'm sure you're aware. A lot of the focus of NAPA is on education around the topics of sustainability and greenhouse gas emissions. But I'm hoping you could share a perspective from a Napa Produce member. What are some of the critical areas that NAPA has to have covered so that the industry can achieve these goals of net zero by 2050?
0: So I think I mentioned it before, but I think that funding for research and development is a really critical part of this whole puzzle. And I don't think that the industry can bear that burden on its own. I think it's really important for governments and pretty much any other organization that is looking to have an impact on climate change. I think it's important for them to consider the construction industry more broadly, and especially the construction materials industry, as a really key component of that. Because globally, I believe construction accounts for about 39% of global emissions and construction materials are about 11% of that. So building roads, building infrastructure, it's necessarily a resource-intensive industry. But what that means is that any small improvements we can make, even a small percentage of improvement, can have really outsized impacts. So I think this industry is often overlooked in terms of the potential that we have to have a positive impact. So I'd really like to encourage people who care about climate change, people in those organizations or in those government agencies, to consider how they can leverage this industry to have a bigger impact. So I think it's really important for NAPA to be focusing on that advocacy for funding for research and development. And then another area, and this I think kind of ties back to one of Richard's questions that I maybe didn't address, which is, what's an area that's overlooked where I think we could do more? And this ties into a potential advocacy route. And that is the increased use of recycled materials in our asphalt mixes. Recycled asphalt pavement, recycled asphalt shingles, other recycled materials that we can use in asphalt mixes is a huge opportunity to lower greenhouse gas emissions because it means we're using less virgin aggregate. So that's equipment that you don't have to turn on to dig up more rocks. It can help displace the use of virgin asphalt binder, which, of course, as I've mentioned, is a petroleum product. And essentially, we can recycle asphalt in a continuous loop. We never have to waste it. and Unfortunately, a lot of specifications are still based on historical mix designs. So they kind of have an artificial cap on how much recycled product we can use in a mix. So in some states, I think it you know it might be capped at below 20%. But we know we can have mixes now with modern technology and balanced mix design. We don't have to rely on this historical mixes. We can actually innovate, use more recycled materials, and then use the right kinds of tests to make sure that performance is where it needs to be and that we meet specifications. And using that improved technology, we can have wrap mixes with 25%, 40%. I think there's even been some experiments with mixes that are 100% wrap. And I think that any agency or government or elected officials that are thinking about climate change and trying to set climate change goals for their community, they should look at their wrap standards. And are they artificially capping how much recycled material we can use in asphalt mixes. I know at Granite, we've been advocating for the use of more recycled materials for a long time. And I think sometimes the conversations with engineering professionals aren't getting as far as we we think they should. So we're trying to think about how can we go with this problem from multiple angles, talk to different kinds of stakeholders who might have a different perspective to really open up their eyes at this opportunity that we're missing and allow those client specifications to let us use more recycled materials. I think it's a huge missed opportunity. And I, I really hope that we see some change in those State Department specifications and other client specifications.
2: I just saw a, a newsletter that had an article that referenced a website that's science based targets. And I heard you mention that. And there's a variety of companies that are kind of like set goals on that. Do you see something like that being useful in our? industry specific?
0: Yeah, so the science-based target initiative seems to be sort of the new standard for how companies should think about setting climate targets. My understanding is that basically that it's a very complex process that requires climate experts, which I am not a climate expert, just to be clear. And I think that by having a net zero plan, NAPA is at least trending towards that science-based target right because we're going we're going all the way to net zero, right? And that's essentially what is necessary for the scientific imperative of climate change is that eventually we're going to have to be net zero. But I think the process of setting a science-based target essentially requires that a company engage with those experts and they can go through their complicated process probably requires an engineering degree which I don't have. And so granite has not yet gone through that process to set a science-based target. Instead, we looked to the EPA's guidance, and they have a minimum guidance of 2.5% every year, which for us equated to 25% over 10 years, because we felt that that was a good minimum ambitious target, but also one that was reasonably achievable from our perspective. I think there's also a fair amount of psychology that comes into play when you're setting a corporate target and looking to engage your teams to really get behind this new goal. And some of the feedback I received from our teams is that if we set a goal that's too ambitious, people might kind of check out and say, well, we're never going to be able to achieve that. So why would I even try? And I really didn't want to have a goal that made people disconnect. I wanted to have a goal that helps people engage. That's how we went about setting our goal. But I think that using the science-based target initiatives is a great path to go towards. And hopefully, that will be something we consider later down the line. So yeah, I'm not too familiar with all the specifics involved. But I think that that's a great initiative. And it really seems to be the current... I don't want to say trend because that, I think, trivializes it. But I think that's the current best practice. And especially investors are looking for publicly traded companies to be ambitious enough to set actual science-based targets.
1: This is an interesting conversation because I think some of these are going to hit us faster than others and when you look at like the science-based targets in the executive order that came out in May of 2021 the federal government was looking at major suppliers to so the federal government actually set science-based targets and so I don't know what a major supplier is right now but that could hit even non-publicly traded companies Having to start looking at this, and and you're right, it is a complex phenomenon when you're trying to get and understand. As you said, it's it's hard enough for some companies to even benchmark where they are right now, let alone then go through these processes. But what are some of the other trends though that you see going on right now from a governmental standpoint to show people that all right, things are changing and the way that people are procuring asphalt, maybe changing in the near future and climate and sustainability is going to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, so certainly there are some key regulatory trends. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest risk or opportunity areas, depending on how you look at it. In California, and of course, granite has a very large footprint in California. There is Senate Bill 260, which has been going through the process. It hasn't been fully approved yet, but things are looking like something is probably going to come out of that bill. And that bill is a corporate carbon emissions reporting bill. It would essentially require any company, whether public or private, that operates in California and has a revenue of over $1 billion to report their carbon footprint and any related targets. So we'll see what happens with that particular bill. But I think the trend is coming. And in my discussions with people who are more closely tied to the legislative world than I am currently their message is basically, this train is coming, right? And that bill actually does include Scope 1, 2, and 3. And Scope 3 is where things get really complicated. Scope 3 is where I have the most concerns about corporate reporting for many reasons, one of which is that it's so complicated, and it becomes, I think, more of a data gathering process than a real impact area. So, From my perspective, if I were a legislator and wanting to encourage reduction in emissions, I would first focus on scope one and two and actually reducing scope one and two, rather than burdening companies with the details of trying to accurately account for scope three. Because practically speaking, especially for our industry, the data just isn't there. We don't really have very good information about how much carbon is embodied in certain kinds of materials. Ultimately, Scope 3 is a really important part of the puzzle and using things like environmental product declarations, for which NAPA has a great tool, the Emerald Eco Label. So I'll give a plug for that here. Understanding how much carbon is embodied in certain materials is a really key part of the puzzle. But having corporate reporting get ahead of where data really is, is a tricky balance. So that's one kind of regulatory area where I have the most concern. Scope 3 is probably what keeps me up at night. And then, of course, we have the SEC rule. So, depending on when this podcast comes out, we'll see what that timing is. But in April, the SEC voted to approve a proposed rule that deals with climate change-related disclosures. And so, that rule is not finalized yet. It's currently in a 60-day notice and comment period. But essentially, that rule is very similar to the California rule in that it requires companies that are publicly traded and have to file with the SEC to disclose information about their carbon footprint. It does currently include scope one, two, and three, if it is, quote, material or a company has a goal around it. So the real question there will be, how does the SEC define material and what does that look like for different industries? So that's that's where I have the most concern about the SEC role is, what's going to be required on the scope three side of things and how reasonably achievable is that within the timelines that they set. But there's another layer of the SEC rule that deals with climate risk. So I mentioned that Granite has just completed its first climate risk assessment. We're diving deeper into that process. But the SEC rule goes beyond that California rule by diving deeper into the risk side. So it would require companies essentially to carefully assess what climate risks impact them and how they're going to mitigate those risks. And then one additional layer in the SEC rule is about financial metrics tied to climate change. So, for example, that could be something like increased insurance spend based on more extreme weather events or rising sea levels. So we'll have to see how those details pan out in the SEC rule. But I think regardless of what kinds of legal challenges it faces and whether or not the rule really goes through, I think the legislative trend is that this is going to move from the world of voluntary reporting to required reporting. And with that comes additional obligations or burdens in terms of how accurate the data you're reporting really is and what level of scrutiny people give to it. So currently, sustainability reporting is mostly voluntary. And I think there's one level of scrutiny that companies are able to give, but eventually we're going to need to have the same kind of rigor behind our our ESG or environmental social and governance reporting that we do for financial reporting. So that includes things like having an internal audit, an external audit, having the terms that the SEC rule uses are limited assurance, and then all the way to reasonable assurance, which means that you have an external auditor looking not only at the information you're providing, but at the systems you have in place to collect that information and what kinds of controls you have around that information. In my role at Granite, one of the things we're looking at doing is making sure that we're prepared for the SEC rule, so that we can be in full compliance. The good news is this has been a really high priority for us for the past couple of years. So we've done a lot of the groundwork needed to be ready for this change, but we will have to do some improvements in terms of figuring out how we get the right kinds of levels of assurance in place and the right kinds of financial-like controls in place for our carbon accounting.
2: I have another follow-up. It was uh, to my question about areas where NAPA can help the industry achieve these goals. I was just kind of curious if you have any thoughts about going towards how our industry is pretty much naturally competitive. We compete for work. And is there a possibility that we could have a race to net zero or are there things in terms of like, can we get an industry competition where we head-to-head companies to try to see who's going to get us there first or who's going to come up with the next big innovation? Because like you said, some of these things are low-hanging fruit, but then there's some things where we're going to need some innovators to step in and really bring us to that next level. So I was just kind of curious what you thought about that.
0: I think that's a really interesting idea. And I've, I've heard that from several people, you know, I'm still relatively new to the industry under five years. But a lot of people say, you know, we're, we're pretty competitive in the construction industry. So I think, you know, leveraging that could be to a benefit. I think generally, I tend to be more of a collaborative thinker. And I think generally, I'd, I'd like to encourage us to think about how we can find more common ground and collaborate more for the common good. So I think maybe there's a, a happy middle ground there where you can have some things kind of set up as a competition but at the same time, also encourage information sharing. Because I think that if a company discovers something great or invents something great that can help other companies reduce emissions, that's technology that we want to be able to share. Maybe that happens in a a market where you're sharing it in a way that you make money. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration. And I think I'd even like to see collaboration more across different industries within construction materials, right? So there's that other C word, and we like to compete with the concrete industry. And I think that that comes up a lot in some of our NAPA conversations. I'd like to think that climate change is something where we all have a shared interest in the health of our planet and on people being able to continue living on the planet. And even where we have that competitive spirit, I'd really like to encourage people to to think beyond those traditional boundaries and think about how we can collaborate maybe even across different industries, maybe secure that funding for all construction materials and to find ways that maybe there are some technologies that could even apply to both concrete and asphalt or asphalt and other construction materials.
1: All right, Raven, we thank you very much for your time and spending a few minutes with us talking about the road forward and kind of what Granite's doing to help the industry advance.
0: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
1: Thinking back over the last few minutes of the podcast, I really think what I want people to understand is that this is a process. The road forward isn't something that we're going to hit and be done with tomorrow. It's going to be something that takes a lot of time, a lot of investing, a lot of changing. And like the members of the Climate Stewardship Task Force, there are times when you probably first look at this, it looks daunting and it looks maybe even undoable, but I think if we as an industry rally around it and come together and do this collaboratively with the right open mind, with good science and good data, I think this is something that could be good for the industry and not just good for the planet.
2: Thanks for listening to Pave It Black. Visit asphaltpavement.org slash podcast to find more episodes, suggest a topic or guest, become a sponsor, or learn more about NAPA. Pave It Black is produced and copyrighted by the National Asphalt Pavement Association. Music by Coleg. As always, thanks to the dedicated workforce connecting diverse communities all across America. Keep on paving it black.